This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and we're very happy to start our fall session of shows. So we're back, yay. We had a little break over the summer due to myself and Sina, my co-producer's busy schedules, but we're very excited to have a great lineup of shows coming up this season. And we're starting that off to talk about how tech companies can fight extremist content online. And I'm sure if any of you have watched the news in the last couple of months and actually the last couple of years, this has become an extremely hot topic with uh, anything from white nationalist groups to Islamic terror groups like ISIS and their use of media and the online world. So I'm very excited to have Chris Meserol on the show to talk about this. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Chris. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I guess this is one of those cases where it's, uh, uh, I can say, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. So it's, it's great to be on the show. I've listened to it for, for a while now. Oh, well, we're excited to have you on as a guest and as a listener. So that's fantastic. For our listeners, just in case you don't know of Chris's background, he is a fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and an expert on artificial it- intelligence emerging technology, and international security. His current research is focused on developing democratic models of digital governance that can be responsive to both extremist exploitation of the Internet and the emerging threats of digital authoritarianism. He has had a couple of great pieces out in the last couple of months. A lot of them have been co-authored with Daniel Byman, and that is one reason why we thought we need to get him on the show to talk about this, We will post a bunch of those article links with the show so you can read further into this topic if you'd like. I will say the couple that have been really great reads are How Big Big Tech Can Fight White White Supremacist Terrorism Online and also Terrorist Definitions and Designations Lists. So we will, like I said, post links to those because they're really a deep read into the topic. So Chris... Why don't we start off with the big picture of why this is so important? Like I said, I'm sure a lot of people have seen a lot of debate about it on the news and in the media. So give us your take. Um, Well, I think that there's been just this awareness. um, If if we're going to do like a big picture uh, overview, I guess we might as well just go big. And so I I think like over the past decade, it's been really interesting to track the discussion of, um, you know, what the, what the strengths and weaknesses or benefits and and risks of social media are. And so if we were having this conversation, um, you know, uh, a decade ago, um, you know, in the summer or fall of 2009, like the social media was the greatest thing ever. Right. Um, Iran had just had the, the green, uh, revolution and you know uh, the Arab Spring was about to start, um, <clears throat> much of which was fueled by you know pro democracy activists using social media online, um, and there was a the, just this sense that this was this technology, uh, and it was early in the Obama you know administration, and there was a sense that like tech and social media in particular were going to be this great democratizing force uh, in. Um, uh, politics and in global affairs, um, and to some extent that really has uh, borne out. I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss the notion that um, uh, you know social media can can be uh, a really positive force for for political change. Um, the downside is that the same democratization of communication that social media allowed for at global scale um, has also been available for use by extremists and by terrorist groups, and so. The first wave of this that we really saw um, in, in 
had to deal with was with the obviously with the Islamic State and its use of um, social media um, uh, early in the Syrian civil war um, and in its use of you know Twitter and other uh, platforms to recruit foreign fighters uh, in the kind of 2013 to 2015 period uh, and even after um, and that was kind of a wake up call I think for the tech industry that they they needed to start taking this a little bit more seriously which we, we can get into um, how they did that. Um, by you know 2016 2017, the tech platforms were starting to take it a lot more seriously. They were hiring the right kind of people, um, starting to implement some reforms on the back end for um, you know how uh, to try and effectively disrupt the use of their platforms for recruitment and coordination by terrorist groups and jihadist groups in particular. Um, what they weren't doing at that point, you know, even two years ago or a year ago was really taking this um, the threat of all extremism uh, that seriously. It was still kind of an ideological bias to it, where they were looking more at um, uh, probably jihadist uh, extremism uh, than, say, far-right extremism. And uh, over the last year, I think what's become increasingly uh, obvious is that um, you know ideology, to some extent, uh, doesn't matter uh, for the way in which these... Uh, you know, tech platforms can be exploited by extremist groups. Um, we've seen, you know, far right, uh, uh, far right extremists and terrorists, um, you know, really leverage the same technologies that, say, the Islamic State did five years ago uh, for their own purposes. And so, we're now at this point where we need to kind of think through um, uh, what kind of reforms we need to see happen, both you know, within the tech sector, within the policy space, possibly. Um, uh, within kind of global governance structures to uh, begin to, to effectively get full purchase over this issue, both, you know, not just with far-right or not just with jihadist uh, extremism, but with both. Uh, and, and how to do that in a way that obviously also is uh, in accord with, you know, human rights and freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Um, and we're now in this really interesting moment where, um, you know, I think uh, there's an energy and an appetite for, I think, creative uh, solutions. Um, and I think we're also uh, at a moment where the tech sector itself is willing to come to the table in ways that they have. They've been pretty reluctant to in the past. Um, and so uh, I am actually really curious and really interested to see what happens over the next year because there's uh, kind of a confluence of events that have happened over the past year or two uh, to lead us to this moment. And I think um, you know, there's a lot of really important and good work that, that can be done going forward. Why don't we dial it back just a little bit for those that might really not know a lot about this subject, because I like to try to make shows available to audiences that really know their stuff and audiences that are coming into a topic new and want to learn about it. So what type of Internet and social networking sites are we seeing the majority of extremist content on, and what type of content are we talking about? So give us a little teaser on that. Yeah, so uh, great point. And I, I apologize if I didn't, I, I was too specific or too niche in the, in the early answer. But I, so the, the, I think one of the most important things to start with, before I even get into like what um, platforms they're using and what kind of content they're sharing, I think it's maybe um, just the, the scholar me would probably think that the, the best way to start is actually to say, you know, what are these, what is the problem that these technologies solve for an extremist group or for a, a terrorist group? Um, and for a terrorist group or um, any kind of violent extremist group, the, the big challenge that they have is how do they find people who are like-minded um, and how do they find and recruit people? How do they, um, begin to coordinate with them in a way that uh, the state um, or those who would kind of, you know, prefer them not to be operating in the open, like um, how do they uh, recruit and coordinate in a way that they're not going to get shut down immediately by state forces? Um, and so it's effectively a problem of discovery. And, and one of the things that's really unique about the web um, is that uh, the architecture of social media and the architecture of web platforms in general is one that lends itself to being able to discover like-minded people um, and communicate with them uh, much more easily and readily than pretty much any other platform that we've ever had uh, in the past. Um, and so 
uh, the one of the things that's interesting about both jihadism and um, uh, you know, far right movements is that they've kind of followed the same trajectory, with one exception on the far right that I'll get to, um, which is to say that they've kind of started out by going to the mainstream, um, most you know popular uh, online platforms, so places like Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. Um, and places where they know that there's a built-in audience and a mechanism for distribution to a really wide array of people. Um, and they've started out by kind of going to those platforms. Um, the platforms themselves at the beginning were not really savvy to what they were doing, and so they could kind of operate fairly freely. Um, and they were able to find um, people who were sympathetic to their views or who you know, might share their views or who were, weren't, at least weren't uh, kind of averse to them, perhaps, uh, and were willing to kind of listen to what they had to say. Um, and they were able to use that to coordinate or to, to recruit new members. And so, um, you know, they were able to, one way to think about it is they were able to kind of piggyback off of the uh, all the innovation that these networks um, had done on connecting people together. Um, so Twitter, Facebook, um, you, you know, lesser than YouTube, but Twitter and Facebook, for example, both have that like recommended follower feature or recommended friend friend feature. Um, and, uh, for the vast majority of us, um, this is like just a great way to find, you know, um, stay in touch with, uh, folks that, uh, you kind of maybe knew when you were in high school or college or something, but had lost track with, um, and it kind of reconnected you with them. Um, or it kind of put you in touch with somebody, you know, if you're an academic, uh, and you're studying civil wars, for example, um, Twitter is really good at finding other academics who study civil wars and connecting you with them, uh, even if you didn't know, you know, know who they were or follow their work previously. Um, the downside of that is that it's also really good, like it effectively kind of built out um, some terror networks for terrorist groups, um, where uh, if you're somebody who follows two or three jihadists on Twitter, and this is back before they got really aggressive about kicking jihadists off their platform, um, it would then recommend like 10 or 15 others, right? And it, it could kind of build out a network for them. Um, and it was a way of, uh, again, building a sense of community, a sense of um, uh, uh, belonging among uh, folks that they might not otherwise be able to reach, particularly in um, uh, English-speaking or, or Western parts of the world. Um and so that's how kind of jihadists, you know, this is, I'm kind of doing a broad brush overview, but that's, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter were really instrumental in, say, the Islamic State's recruitment efforts um, uh, and, you know, the recruitment efforts of, of many other militias in the Syrian civil war back in, um, you know, the 2012, 2013, to 2015, 16 period. Um, and something similar, very similar happened with, um, I would say, kind of far right uh, extremist groups over the last um, uh, half decade as well, where, um, you know, they weren't really being monitored online. So they were able to kind of uh, get their message out on some of these platforms, um, very effectively and connect up with other people who shared their views very effectively. Um, uh, the one, there's a couple of exceptions to it with, with far right, uh, in the sense that they were also able to, um, piggyback off of uh, a broader ecosystem um, uh, and uh, kind of a, a system ecosystem that uses mess, you know uh, memes and online um, you know message boards uh, to generate really just kind of um, uh, niche content um, that uh, was really extreme politically that nobody really took seriously on places like 4chan. Uh, more recently on uh, HN, um, but the 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 far right, you know, going back to the, you know, um, I don't know if you remember there was like this Pepe the Frog meme. Um, yes, good old know, Pepe. Yeah, exactly. A few years ago, and it, it's just crazy, right? Like this idea that there's a cartoon frog that if you put it in a, um, you know, an image and circulate it online, that it kind of signals something about like your own political. Preferences, and it's really hard for you know a social media network um, or any kind of online community to really moderate that, right? Because how do you 
you know, how do you remove content based on the fact that it's got a cartoon frog in it, right? Um, it's, it's, it's just hard to do that and say that you're also upholding free speech um, and freedom of expression. Um, but one of the things that we've seen is this kind of broader ecosystem where you get these memes that are generated that mean something very meaningful to a small niche extremist community. Um, uh, and then what will happen is it will be on a, it'll be on a kind of... Uh, uh, you know, Reddit's gotten better at this back in the day. It kind of originated on Reddit or 4chan or something like that. It would get shared very widely by a community. Um, it would start to migrate over to a place like Twitter. Um, and then um, eventually a mainstream media outlet might notice it, write an article about it. Um, and then it was in the mainstream. Um, and without anyone really intending it to, to happen, um, these memes could very quickly become a part of mainstream dialogue and mainstream political discourse, and it was something that everybody had to take seriously, and it legitimated um, some of these you know, online extremist behaviors. Um, and for the far right in particular, um, you know, they were able to leverage that kind of exposure uh, very effectively, where they had, you know, the, the Pepe the Frog meme was also just blatantly anti-Semitic, um, uh, in terms of the people who are creating it and playing with it. Um, uh, and they were able to get that kind of messaging into the media, which otherwise has done a really good job of filtering out anti-Semitic views. Um, and uh, that's something that's new, and it's allowed for kind of um, popular recruitment at scale in a way that, say, you know, the I haven't, I don't really know what the equivalent of like Pepe the Frog would be for jihadist networks. Um, I may be wrong, but I I don't think that they've kind of played around with memes in quite the same way, uh, at least within um, a Western context. Um, And so um, there's that kind of subtle difference. And then the other thing that's happened over the last couple of years is that um, uh, most of the social uh, media platforms and um, uh, content you know, sharing platforms have also switched over a lot of their recommendation algorithms to just purely deep learning based systems, um, which uh, on the one hand, you know, if you would think about it, you would say, well, this is, you know, you're now just turning everything over to an algorithm. So it'll be more objective because, you know, there's no human kind of shaping, you know, what the algorithm says, uh, you know, somebody should see or be recommended to watch. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of, like, YouTube, for example. Um, uh, you know, the, there's an algorithm that kind of governs, you know, what the recommended next video should be, what the next autoplay video should be. Um, and when, you know, YouTube kind of switched over to more of, like, a purely deep learning-based approach to that, um, you know, intuitively, I think a lot of people thought, well, this might be good because then it's going to just be, you know, more literally more objective because you're removing human bias from uh, the decision-making process over what should be recommended. The the problem was those deep learning algorithms or AI kind of algorithms, um, they're learning on the historical data that that YouTube has about uh, what people click on and what people uh, find most engaging. Um, And so it turns out what people, you know, find most engaging and most... um, uh, (laughs) most scintillating is often kind of extremist content of, of any form, right? So if you, you know, if you do a search for vegetarianism, like it'll quickly lead you to veganism. If you do, if you're a runner and you do a search for like a 5K, you'll start to see, you know, videos about half marathons. And if you search for half marathons, you'll start to see videos about marathons. And eventually you'll get videos for like ultra marathons, right? Um, and the reason is that that's just the, the algorithm has kind of learned on its own that that's a little bit more engaging content that people want the more extreme version of whatever it is that they're they're searching for, uh, which in a lot of cases is you know fairly harmless, but with the one exception of kind of politics and ideology. And so um, the same process happens with um, you know if you search for fairly conventional mainstream conservative views on a place like YouTube, um, you're very quickly going to be led down this kind of recommendation um, uh, spiral where you ultimately kind of end up at far-right views. Um, And so uh, in the last couple years in particular, we've seen kind of, um, you know, the far-right extremist movements really uh, take advantage of that um, and get a lot more exposure and a lot more viewership and a lot more 
um, you know, be a lot more successful at recruiting as a result of some of the algorithmic changes that have happened, um, you know, on these platforms. I've, I've talked about YouTube, but, the, you know, something similar has happened on um, most of the other main, mainstream um, platforms as well. And so, uh, anyway, it's, it's a long way of saying that um, the, the platforms um, that uh, the far-right um, are now using, they've kind of developed this broad ecosystem of kind of, you know, some internet messaging services. They've, they've learned how to very effectively use those. They've also learned how to kind of piggyback off of um, the recommendation algorithms of, um, you know, the mainstream social networks. Um, and they've been able to kind of create this, like, parallel media ecosystem that's really been uh, valuable for their own recruiting, and it's done it at, at a global scale. Um, they've, they've been able to kind of attract like-minded people um, all over the world, do that in, in Europe or in um, Australia, New Zealand, or or in the U.S. Um, and that's a little bit new compared to, say, even the, the jihadist recruitment that's happened in the past. Um, so uh, I think I may have uh, started going off on a few digressions, but ho- hopefully uh, that's a decent overview to your, to your question. No, that was fantastic. And like I said, it's always good to get an overview just in case. I think some of the things you've said, there's a lot of interesting things on how technology is being used to help, but it's also, in a sense, being used by the adversary to make their message and their reach stronger. And I always find that really interesting with any extremist groups, whether it's the Islamic State or a white supremacist group, to see how each side learns from the technology, how it can be bad for them, and also how it can be good for them, this whole learning process. So maybe we could talk about that a bit, as well as how now the tech companies are learning from all of it to try to counter it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the most really, one of the most interesting things about uh, the online space is that so much of it is happening in a way that's public. Um, that, that's changed a little bit, which, which you can talk about because there's, there's been some migration over to more private um, platforms recently. But um, a lot of the, you know, it's just so obvious what's happening, um, you know, on the major platforms in particular. And there's kind of this, pub, this cat and mouse game being played out in public um, between um, you know, terrorist groups like, you know, a few years ago, like the Islamic State um, and kind of the messaging platforms. Uh, and then, um, you know, what's been interesting to me is just the way that the, um, you know, far-right uh, extremist groups have also kind of learned from that experience and what they've seen uh, other jihadist groups uh, do. I think there's probably a, a bit of... Um, the same kind of learning going on in reverse, um, where uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that, you know, that, like, for example, the Islamic State's been fairly quiet over the last year, but um, uh, I suspect that they've been really paying close attention to what's happening on these platforms um, and that they've been learning, uh, they've been kind of quietly watching and learning what, um, uh, you know, how far-right violent extremisms have been, uh, violent extremists have been using them and, and are adapting to new policies put in place. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of this never-ending um, uh, game from the from the perspective of the tech platforms. I think one of the things that they've done is that they've I think they've learned that um, they can't just kind of have uh, their platforms be wide open anymore. Um, you know, when um, when they first, I'll, I'll just use the examples of like Facebook and Twitter. Um, you know, when Twitter first started over a decade ago. Um, they they actually had like a really strong kind of ideological preference towards um, erring towards keeping you know freedom of expression and, and freedom of speech as kind of sacrosanct values. Um, you know they they kind of famously said that they were the the free speech wing of the free speech party, right? And so they were really reluctant to ever kind of crack down on um, how their platform was being used from a from a freedom of expression perspective. Um, Facebook wasn't as quite as um, dogmatic as that, I actually, um, but I think they were so, in, from like the 2010 to you know, 2015 period, they were so focused on global growth that I don't think that they, you know, they went from a few hundred million users to over 
you know, a billion users to over two billion users today. And when you're doing that kind of scaling, kind of organizationally, most of your focus has to go into, you know, effectively just keeping the lights on. Um, uh, there's a lot of technical challenges involved with that kind of scaling that uh, we can talk about. But they, they had, I think, a, you know, their eye wasn't on how these platforms and how that growth was going to enable new, you know, uh, malicious actors to exploit it. It was more just, you know, how do we grow as big as possible, as fast as possible? Um, whereas Twitter, I think, had some of that issue. Uh, they, they were, especially early on, just trying to keep the service running well, but they also had this kind of ideological um, uh, viewpoint that they didn't want to moderate uh, the content flowing through the platform um, early on in their history. And then I think what happened was, you know, the Islamic State became so pernicious and was just so public about their use of them um, that politically uh, it became untenable for, for the major platforms to uh, continue to ignore the problem. Um, Twitter, uh, you know, Facebook kind of, I think, made some of the first efforts at it. Um, uh, Twitter eventually got there. Um, uh, they've started to be a lot more aggressive about trying to identify, say, Islamic State content. Um, uh, and they would use some of the tools that they developed for, you know, like the same kind of deep learning tools that you can use for recommendation algorithms. Uh, you can also use to try and find um, some of the you know, the terror networks on their on their platform. Um, I think pretty much all the major technology companies have started to invest fairly heavily in, in that kind of research um, and have gotten a lot better at what's called deplatforming, where you know if they if they find a terror network that's that's on their um, platform, that they'll effectively just ban you know all the nodes on that network that they that they find. Um, uh, and remove them, or at least suspend them uh, for a time until they're clear exactly who um, who is on their platform. Um, the uh, the downside of that, uh, or not the downside of that, I think that's a it's a move that they should have made. Um, the challenge with that is that that's proven harder for them to do with far right content um, uh, in particular uh, than it was with jihadist content because. Um, uh, because so much of the rhetoric coming out of, you know, the far-right extremist world um, uh, effectively mirrors some of the more extreme populist rhetoric uh, of um, some, you know, official politicians. Um, and so for them to begin to uh, moderate that kind of content um, and the kind of networks that support that content um becomes a little bit uh, more challenging for them because they have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, it's okay if a politician says that, you know, in the, in the case of the United States, you know, Donald Trump very early on in his presidential campaign said something effective. Um, I think it may have actually been the direct quote that, like, Mexicans are rapists, right, um, which would probably violate most of the hate speech guidelines that are in, in place today, um, but it's very difficult if you're um, you know, a, a tech platform to explain why it's okay for the president to say something like that, but not a casual user of your platform. Um, and so the, anyway, the, the, the far right, I think has kind of gotten a little bit more um, of a free pass as a result of, of that particular challenge. Um, and the, I think they've learned that the, uh, the major platforms are going to struggle to moderate that kind of speech, and they've learned really effective ways of getting around it. Um, you know, even something like the Pepe the Frog meme, which we just talked about, is a you know, in their end, it's to some extent kind of a clever hack for how to get around. You know, the you know, as the platforms have put in place better you know, hate speech protections, um, you know. Something like it's not obvious that something like a frog would violate a, a, a hate speech protection, even though it's for the, the folks that are using it. Um, effectively, what it is, it's a, it's a form of hate speech that they can signal to their, you know, like-minded individuals that um, they have certain beliefs and certain preferences um, that other the other folks in the mainstream don't, um, but that you know, the the mainstream platforms are going to be really reluctant to shut down. Um, so. Anyway, there's a there's a long history of cat and mouse going on. I think one other thing I'll I'll just say very briefly is that um, 
uh, the as and we've seen this play out both within jihadism um, movements and um, uh, some of the far right movements as the mainstream platforms have gotten better at kind of deplatforming. Um, we've seen this migration away from the mainstream platforms to either uh, end-to-end encrypted uh, platforms like Telegram or to um, sites set up like uh, like Gab in the case of the far right, which are um, uh, effectively like messaging applications that are designed for a particular community uh, to use. Um, and I, I can talk more about that if, if you want, but um, it's... It's another. It's kind of the latest evolution in this cat and mouse game between the uh, the tech sector and uh, extremist networks, um, and uh, it has the advantage of getting um, these movements off. You know, out of you know they they're, they're going to struggle to get a lot more mainstream exposure when they go to more private networks, um, but it also allows them a space where they can coordinate a lot more easily without fear of. Um, you know, the state monitoring what they're doing and uh, disrupting their uh, coordination. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's, it's better, it's probably better for the world that they're not kind of just popping up in public, but it also means that we're losing our ability to kind of track and monitor what it is that they're saying and discussing and, and coordinating. I think that's a big issue right here with the idea of these big tech companies and then the smaller ones as well is that, having everything so public versus having everything so private. Yes, there are regulations you can put in place for the public sphere, but the private sphere, it really depends on the actual company that is the platform that's hosting these conversations and these message boards. How do we place, I guess the best word is a healthy responsibility on big tech companies and small as well, although small tech companies, for instance, um, I think of Just Paste It way back when, when ISIS found them and it was just flooding this website. And I think there was like some guy in Poland that had Just Paste and was completely overwhelmed. And and I think that's another question to ask is how can big big tech companies help these smaller platforms? that potentially are overrun with extremist content. But going back to this idea of public and private platforms or public and and encrypted, we could say, platforms, what kind of responsibilities should we put on the companies that are realistic? Because in a lot of the conversations, some of them seem highly unrealistic, but governments, of course, want a, a quick fix and potentially the idea of massive fines or something if companies don't take things down so quickly, but it, sometimes it's not that easy to find all the content because, as you said, there are methods that groups and individuals are using to mask content like Pepe the Frog and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, uh, I think I might start with the, the kind of the issue of... Um, uh, how the big tech companies can help the small ones and then move into more of like the encrypted uh, debate. Um, Cause I, I, uh, I know my question was very long winded. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it, um, cause there's a fundamental issue here, which is what um, the, the paper that Dan and I had earlier this summer uh, kind of talked about, which is that if you are in the tech sector and you host either a file sharing platform or um, a social network or a messaging application, um, there's a fundamental um, uh, with effectively like an expertise asymmetry, um, which is that, you know, the extremist networks, jihadist networks in particular, but also increasingly the far right are kind of the early adopters from hell, right? Like they're going to be constantly searching for ways to um, share and disseminate their, their messages is that are flying under the radar of, um, uh, you know, either, you know, security services or the big platforms themselves. Um, and what that means is that the, the extremist groups are a lot more savvy about using tech than the tech sector is savvy about what extremist groups and terrorist groups are doing. Um, and that's just kind of like a fundamental asymmetry that has always been there and always will be there. Um, 
And the reason is that if you're if you're Marius uh, or the you know if you're running just pasted um, from a server in your basement, um, uh, you are primarily like your biggest existential threat is that you go out of business, right? Um, you're you're primarily focused on just staying in business and just keeping the lights on. Um, you know, even a company like Facebook, which was enormous uh, compared to something like just Facebook, even as far back as 2010. They were really like, you know, the kind of, I can't really emphasize enough that the complexity of the technical challenges they faced when they decided to really try and scale out globally and shoot for a company that would have, um, you know, several billion users. Like that is not a trivial challenge and it requires kind of you as an organization to prioritize um, a lot of uh your organizational resources and focus and strategy on like how to scale um, effectively. Um, and it, it means that you're not going to really spend much time thinking about, um, uh, you know, how your platform is going to be exploited by bad actors, right? Cause you're just trying to stay, you're trying to keep the, the site up and running and operational, even as it's growing. Um, and, uh, what that again? What that means is that you don't develop the kind of in-house expertise uh, that you would need to really identify how malicious actors would uh, be exploiting your platform. Um, and really, what it's mean, I think, what, you know, after we've been through this for over a decade now, I think it's pretty obvious that, um, particularly for platforms that are um, ad-supported, uh, you really are not going to be a viable as a business until you're in the hundreds of billion, hundreds of millions of users. Um, at which point you can finally maybe afford to have somebody, you know, have a team of folks that are dedicated to just um, counterterrorism and to, you know, bringing on, you can, you can bring in people who have professional counterterrorism expertise or counter extremism expertise. Um, but you, even then you're probably only going to bring on a few um, and the volume of, um, you know, information and networking that's happening on your platform by extremist movements is probably going to be vastly greater than even a few um, uh, counter-extremism experts can handle. Um, and so the the challenge for the tech sector writ, writ large is, you know, you've got these platforms that are now global in scale, right? And there's a a few things that happened at the technical level over the past decade that explain why that's true, but uh, and we can get into it. But the, you know, you're now able to um, share and store content globally uh, in near real time um, uh, for very cheap. Um, uh, for you know, it's 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 possible for somebody in Poland, like one person, to host content a content sharing service that can be used globally. Um, in a way that that was just not possible 10 years ago. And so they've now got, um, or, you know, 20 years ago, at least not at the scale that even a place like just paste is operating at. Um, and, you know, there's just no way that, you know, one person running a business is ever going to have the kind of counterterrorism expertise, um, uh, necessary to try and figure out what to do about, you know, the Islamic state when they start kind of sharing things on their platform. Um, and the, the kind of expertise that you need is if you want to do it responsibly, if you want to kind of somehow figure out who is the Islamic state and who is not the Islamic state, who just happens to kind of be somebody say, who's like Muslim on your site, um, but doesn't actually believe what the Islamic state believes. You need to have a pretty nuanced understanding of, you know, the political context in certain countries, the religious context in those, those regions, um, and it's just not feasible to expect that, you know, a software engineer is going to know all of that at global scale. Um, and I think what needs to happen is that there needs to be a lot more resource sharing between maybe the, there's really only maybe two companies that are big enough um, at this point to uh, have a large body of counterterrorism expertise that's even remotely proportional to the to the challenge they face. And those are you know, those two companies are Facebook and Alphabet, um, and they've developed, uh, you know, pretty robust, um, uh, 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 they've kind of developed pretty good teams of counterterrorism experts in-house, and I think the challenge for the tech sector is how do you get the expertise that's embedded with those platforms uh, into the hands of, uh, you know, 
folks that belong to or kind of work within the tech sector, but uh, not for those companies. Um, and to their credit, I think you know Facebook and, and Google and others have done a pretty good job at some of the at some kind of um, forms of sharing expertise. Like um, you know, there's an image hashing. Uh, uh, database now, so um, you know if uh, if one platform kind of finds a jihadist video, for example, uh, it can go into the image hashing dataset and be shared by um, uh, other uh, tech companies that um, you know may just connect to it through an API or something, but don't have like a, a vast team of uh, of you know, counterterrorism experts in-house. Um, Facebook also released, like, their own AI for um, identifying uh, or screening jihadist or terrorist content, I think it was, in videos uh, or images uh, earlier this summer. And, you know, it's it's the kind of algorithm that you can just, if you're a single software engineer, um, you, know, you can download it and um, plug it into your own application fairly easily. Um, and so, like, things like that, I think, are really essential, but um, there's still this broader um, this broader issue of, you know, AI and machine learning can only do so much, hash sharing databases can only do so much, there's still a lot of really nuanced um, questions that require a lot of nuance around counterterrorism and counter-extremism online, and there's really only, you know, a couple companies that have in-house talent that can... Um, uh, discriminate and adjudicate some of the, the harder counterterrorism issues uh, in a really nuanced way, and um, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more effort being made by some of those companies uh, in terms of how they engage the, the tech sector writ large in places like Just Paste It, so that um, uh, they're able to lean on that kind of um, uh, expertise. Probably the, the most obvious way to do it would be to kind of set up a global registry or data set of different um, uh, terrorist groups and extremist groups uh, worldwide. Um, the major tech firms, I think, all have um, their own kind of internal data sets, but they're not um, publicly facing. And so, um, you know, a place like Just Pasted, you know, they, they, they can kind of lean on Facebook for their um, image, uh, you know, image screening AI, but they can't really lean on them to help them figure out the difference between HTS and like the Islamic state and Syria, for example. Um, and I, I think that that's the kind of expertise that ultimately needs to be embedded throughout the tech sector, not just in a couple of, of companies. Um, uh, the way that that um, gets to the, the other part of your question was about kind of, you know, as more and more of these movements start to move uh, to more private platforms um, or encrypted platforms, um, you know, what should be done. I think it, it, that gets even more complicated, right? And it requires even more expertise, which is why I think we need to solve that kind of... The fundamental problem I think we need to solve first is how to get the counterterrorism expertise that exists within the tech sector distributed more widely across the tech sector. Um, because if you don't do that, then you don't have a chance of kind of, you know, helping a place like Telegram or some of these other, um, you know, and then encrypted apps get purchase over what they're doing because they don't even have as much visibility into the content that's flowing through their platforms. Uh, they have some in terms of the metadata, um, but it requires even more nuanced judgments on their part um, about uh, who the people on the platform might actually be, um, you know, what it is they're actually doing. Uh, they have to kind of make... It's a, it, to some extent, it's more guesswork than it would be on a place like, you know, Facebook knows exactly what the image is that's being shared on Facebook. You know, Telegram doesn't always know what the image is that's being shared on Telegram. Um, but they do know something about the accounts that are kind of interacting with each other, things like that. Um, and uh, there's going to be, you know, for that problem to be solved, like that's something that I think is going to require a lot of cross-platform coordination um, and there may be efforts going on there that I'm not aware of, but to, as far as I can see, I don't think there's been enough cross-platform um, uh, communication or coordination to really meet the scale of the problem and the challenge of, of what's happening as it's currently evolving. I think another important question and, and issue that comes up here 
is when you were mentioning groups, or, or should I say tech companies recognizing groups and their content on their sites. But that can be problematic, especially depending on what lists a tech company is using to designate a group, since we know some groups in one country we are considered a terrorist group, other countries they're not. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that a bit, because you did have that great article about these designation lists and how um, it can be problematic. So what kind of issues come up with that and how can they potentially be solved? Oh, thank you so much for asking about this. I could talk about this all day. Um, uh, so, uh, I didn't, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the, this is like, this is like the corollary to the question about counterterrorism expertise, right? Because right now, if you are a small company um, working um, as a, if, if you're a small company and you're a file sharing service or a social network or a messaging app, and you don't have access to the lists that, say, like Facebook or Google um, have internally, um, your only real recourse, and you can't afford like your own counterterrorism team. Your very like your your natural thought is okay. Like I don't have expertise in this, but like I bet the U.S. government does, or I bet the U.K. government does. Um, so why don't I just go find like their own, you know, whatever organizations they designate as terrorists, like. Um, I'll just lean heavily on that for building out um, our global, um, you know, terrorism uh, list. Um, you know, if you're if you're based in the U.S., you're actually obligated to follow like the U.S. list, um, and the, you know, same for the U.K. Um, uh, but uh, you know, the question for for most of these services is, you know, if you're just pasted in Poland, like, do you use the U.S. list globally, or do you just use it in the U.S. Um, and uh, a lot of times the answer is, well, let's just kind of like pool, you know, whatever list we can find online and use them as a proxy for, you know, what we should and shouldn't allow on our, on our websites. Um, the, the problem with those lists is that they are intensely political. Um, the, the, the impulse behind it is right. And the impulse is that governments probably have a lot of expertise on counterterrorism, counterextremism. Um, the problem there is that, that that expertise is usually embedded within security services or intelligence agencies, um, and yet the lists that are produced, um, like in the U.S., the Foreign Terrorist Organization list is, is produced by the State Department, um, and uh, it is very much a political product. Um, it has to go through a, a real political process, um, and there's really significant um, uh, the academic domain would call them like transaction costs involved with getting a uh, a group designated. You know, there's a lot of people who can intervene across our, the U.S. political system to prevent somebody from being designated, um, and so uh, it gets really politically complicated, um, and it requires a lot of uh, political energy and political capital to get a group designated. Um, and so what that means is that there needs to be really strong political incentives, um, even within a democracy um, that has a lot of counterterrorism expertise before a group actually gets um, uh, uh, designated as a terrorist organization. Um, and so the, the lists themselves end up reflecting kind of the political priorities of, um, you know, in the case of the USFTO list, it kind of reflects the political priorities of the last 20 years where you, you get a lot of groups that are, you know, a lot of jihadist groups focused on um, uh, or involved in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, you get most of the groups involved with um, al-Qaeda and the war on terror um, but you don't get many, um, you know, you don't get many of the local kind of jihadist groups around the world, and you certainly don't get any of the kind of far-right uh, terrorist groups, because um, there's just not political demand, or there wasn't um, until very recently for that kind of designation. You also, in the case of the U.S., don't have any domestic um, uh, uh, organizations or actors appearing on that list. Uh, um, just by, you know, unlike, say, the UK and Canada, which have both foreign and domestic lists, uh, or uh, have lists that, that draw on both foreign and domestic actors, um, the State Department is barred from putting domestic groups on 
on the foreign terrorist organization list. And so um, if you were just to try and even, you know, put together, if you're a U.S. company and you're, let's say you were only focused on the U.S., um, you didn't even care about your global audience, uh, you still probably wouldn't want to use the U.S. list because it wouldn't have the domestic actors that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't really have much chance of catching, say, like the um, uh, extremists involved in the El Paso shooting um, recently. Uh, you're just not going to get that kind of uh, movement uh, from the FTO list, or extremist group, rather, from the FTO list. And so um, the list, like, the, the impulse to use them is understandable, but it, it leads you, um, I guess another way of putting it is it requires its own expertise to know what those lists are and what they do and don't contain. Um, and so the same lack of expertise that would push you into trying to use like a state designation list um, is also going to make it really hard for you to figure out what the strengths and weaknesses of those lists are. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things we did, Dan and I did in the papers, we looked over um, uh, the designation lists of all the Five Eyes countries. And, uh, the Five Eyes are the uh, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. And we have a really close intelligence-sharing relationship across those countries. Um, and one of the most interesting things about those lists is that you have um, five countries that are all very democratic. They all are liberal. They're all um, uh share about as common a set of, you know, liberal values or democratic values as uh, you'll ever find. Um, and yet, uh, and they also are, like, obligated to share intelligence with each other. Um, and yet, uh, the lists that you see uh, those five eyes countries produce are all actually pretty different. Like, they're not as, as similar as you would expect. And, and the reason is that many of the groups on there are on there for kind of quirky or idiosyncratic political reasons um, that reflect the domestic politics of each country more so than, um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, a a group is actually terrorist. Um, And so those those lists aren't designed to capture all terrorist groups around the world and all terrorist actors around the world. um, There's just too much of a political process that goes into producing them. Um, and so anyway, that's, I'll, I'll end my rant about the use of those lists, uh, exclusively, uh, there, but, uh, the, it's a real challenge for, um, you know, tech companies, if they can't afford in-house counterterrorism expertise, they probably shouldn't lean on just, you know, even democratic, uh, terrorist designation lists, um, you know, the question of what they should do is, is a, is a really challenging one. And I, I think the, um, uh, ultimate answer is really that uh, the tech sector, in combination with civil society, um, kind of produces some kind of shared framework, either its own list or uh, a framework for producing those lists. Um, and uh, to get to the point that I think you were referencing earlier, too, like you, you want to make sure that these lists are not... Um, uh, that they're as unbiased as possible and that they... Um, uh, genuinely do um, uh, only capture groups that are kind of uh, that are effectively like terrorist groups and that are not um, being labeled you know as terrorist groups uh, for political reasons um, you know for example China and other non-democratic uh, countries will often label dissidents and human rights activists as terrorists um, and so that's, that's another reason why you don't always want to lean on uh, state designation lists because you don't always know why the states are, are designating, um, you know, some some groups as terrorists and some groups as not. Um, and um, all this to say, like, I think uh, there, there needs to be uh, some mechanism in place for a global list to be produced that has transparency about what the criteria are that has, you know, some kind of vetting um, by civil society actors that can kind of make sure that there's a consistent process that's being put in place to vet uh, these groups um, and that uh, any of the groups that appear in the data set really are terrorist groups or or violent extremist groups and aren't just kind of um, legitimate, uh, you know, uh, human rights activists or dissidents uh, that are just kind of 
being uh, included in those groups for political reasons. Um, so it's it's a challenging issue, but it's it's one that I think we can actually. To me, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit that's still out there that we can make a lot of progress on uh, if there's um, uh, a willingness to engage in it uh, by the tech sector uh, in particular. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is this idea of extremist content online and not all of it is necessarily attached to a group, yet it's still dangerous to an extent and harmful as we've seen with a lot of these mass shootings mm-hmm. across the states as well as overseas Christchurch, etc mm-hmm. so that opens up a whole nother can of worms because a lot of these this is more of an ideology versus a group mm-hmm. but certain groups attach themselves to the ideology as well so how do you work with that because it isn't something you can stick a name on as far as a group it's it's an ideology. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's where I would lean on um, the, I guess another way of framing it is um, when you're thinking about content and how it's being stored and distributed online, like I, I tend to think of content in terms of, uh, you know, there's the creation or production of the content, there's the distribution, and then there's the consumption. Um, and for a long time over the past, you know, mostly over the past decade, most of the focus has been to the extent that uh, the tech sector engages on this issue has been focused on removals and, uh, you know, removing particular forms of content. Um, With something that's kind of more ideological in nature, there isn't really a group behind it. It's kind of a, you know, a meme or it's, um, you know, just an idea that's out there. It's being floated through, um, you know, maybe it, starts on the fringes of the far right and then kind of moves more into the mainstream or vice versa. Um, You know, you're not really going to want to deplatform that necessarily, um, meaning you don't necessarily want to go to the points of content production or content consumption and just block it completely. Um, But there's a lot of room uh, on the distribution side that um, I think, um, uh, there's a, there's a lot of room for experimentation on how the tech sector and um, uh, different tech companies uh, modulate the virality of particular forms of content um, or, you know, there, there's room for, you know, how often something, you know, they can manipulate how often something can be shared, how much it can be shared, whether it's going to be, you know, open for use by the recommendation algorithms, um, things like that, um, that, you know, you don't, it doesn't run into the thorny problem of, are you really just going to suppress this speech outright? Like, are you going to remove it and and take it down? Um, Or, you know, should we still allow it to exist? Like, I think there's a lot of content um, that, uh, you know, like if if you follow, you know, some of, um, uh, you know, the, the El Paso shooter or the, New Zealand shooters kind of um, writings. If you if you read them or follow the um, you know the broader communities that they're that they were involved in online, um, a lot of what they write and talk about is kind of overlaps with what um, I disagree with, but what we viewed as kind of legitimate views uh, to have within our political discourse at the moment. So really strident anti-immigration views, things like that. Um, the rhetoric with which they do, with which they kind of discuss those views, um, I think uh, there's ways that the tech sector, I think, can uh, limit the exposure and virality, as I was mentioning earlier, um, to how they are um, distributed without necessarily just kind of taking them down completely. Um, and yet there hasn't been... At least in the U.S., I'm not aware that there's been a lot of effort put into that. Um, there have been some efforts um, uh, in other regions of the world where, um, you know, an example might be um, in India, um, you know, WhatsApp began to restrict the number of times you could share content or the number of people that you could share it with. Um, and they were doing that because, you know, there was forms of hate speech that were and misinformation that were spreading um, uh, in what were effectively, um, 
conflict environments or pre-conflict environments, um, and they wanted to kind of just limit the speed and velocity at which that kind of rhetoric or viewpoint could um, could inflame further an already tense situation. Um, and I, I think the the question that we need to have now, I think about uh, you know how tech is being used uh, by some of the far right extremists in particular is whether we you know, in light of Christchurch and in light of um, El Paso and um, some of the other attacks that we've seen recently, whether the costs um, of inaction are kind of, uh, you know, now going to be greater uh, than the costs of, you know, the kind of marginal costs on uh, free expression of beginning to limit uh, the the rate at which some of, you know, some forms of content can be shared. Um, and, you know, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question, but I do think it's a conversation that we need to start having. So to kind of wrap up all of this and a lot of information that we've been dealing with and a very difficult subject, because I, I don't personally think there are any easy fixes to this. And it's probably an ongoing learning process and an ongoing, as you called it, cat and mouse process. Mm-hmm. Breaking it down, what can tech companies do here on out to help prevent extremist contents on their platforms? Yeah, well, again, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, I, I think that there's um, – uh, let, me, let me actually just start with uh, – before I even get to that, like I, the, the follow-on point to the one that you made about um, – that you just made was that – I think that in the long run, kind of how to handle um, more ideological content um, online is probably going to be a bit like debates over the marginal tax rate. And I, I don't mean that in any kind of flippant, flippant or trivial, I don't mean to trivialize it. I, it's actually meant to signal the, the reverse of that, where, you know, there's always going to be a debate um, over, you know, how much to tax and how much to reallocate. And there's never going to be kind of this optimal solution um, that uh, uh, we agree on society-wide about, um, you know, how much tax is too much tax. Um, and I, I think the, the reason I bring that up is that I think we're going to approach, if we're not already there, uh, we're going to approach fairly quickly a point where we've done some kind of really obvious things on to you know, all the obvious measures and countermeasures are kind of implemented. And then we need to kind of begin to have this just ongoing debate about how we as a society want to balance free speech protections versus protecting um, our most vulnerable um, citizens and communities from, you know, violent extremism. Um, And there's not always going to be a right answer or an easy answer to that, but it's one that we're just going to have to kind of constantly um, uh, adjust over time. Um, and it'll be just kind of, I think, a, a latent part of our um, political discourse uh, going forward. Because I, I don't know that there's ever going to be like an easy answer to that. that. That's kind of two moral goods in conflict with each other. Um, and, you know, what we've learned from looking at other areas where that's the case um, is that, you know, every generation ends up kind of having to decide on their own how they want to balance those two things. Um, that said, like there is still some some low hanging fruit that I think the tech companies could get a lot better at. Um, you know, as as I mentioned, like the the real problem here is just that there's an information asymmetry or an expertise asymmetry between um, you know the tech sector's understanding of extremism and extremist use and understanding of tech platforms. Um, and so, what that to me suggests um, is that. Uh, the tech sector uh, and large companies in particular need to get a lot better at sharing what expertise they do have in-house, as I've kind of talked about before. Um, I would love to see, um, you know, I know, like, you know, for example, Facebook has their own internal dangerous, what they call dangerous organizations list. Um, I'm sure that they have good reasons um, and probably reasonable reasons for why they don't release that publicly. Um, but I would say that the the public benefits uh, and the, the benefits of the public good that would come with a uh, um, you know, the release of that list and the, uh, you know, ability to kind of 
have civil society vet that list um, and allow it to be a resource for the tech community at large would be enormous. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to see that happen. Um, I'd also like to see um, the tech companies as they discovered um, uh, the uh, they've gotten better at realizing that AI alone is not going to solve the content moderation problems on their platform, uh, and they've started to hire more and more moderators um, uh, to help um, uh, you know adjudicate some of the more uh, difficult decisions about you know who is or isn't a terrorist or extremist on their platform and whether something does or doesn't violate um, their their guidelines against. Uh, um, free speech or, or hate speech, rather. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of room for um, you know most of the, most of the folks that they've got doing that. You know, they've got kind of a team of you know most of the companies have a team of legitimate counterterrorism experts that kind of set the policies by which uh, content moderators then um, uh, judge or or make content removal or, or platform removal decisions. Um, but the, the contractors themselves tend to be low-skilled, uh, poorly paid, um, and generally lack their own kind of expertise uh, in the subject areas. Um, and I think there's a lot of room for, um, you know, effectively, you know, upskilling that uh, segment of the labor pool uh, within these companies, um, you know, as moderation becomes more and more important and human moderation becomes more and more important. Um, you know, we need to kind of, I think, uh, value uh, human content moderators more than they have been in the past. It's a really difficult job. It's kind of like being a policeman for the Internet. Um, and right now, most of the contracting firms that hire human moderators um, just don't have, a, they don't have a lot of protections in place for the, for the people doing that job. Um, there's not a lot of benefits that come with it. There's certainly not much social status that comes with it. There's also not a lot of screening for, for expertise. Um, and, you know, I'd love to see that that position become one that is more widely respected on par with, like, you know, some, you know, police person uh, or a social worker or, you know, a lot of jobs that we have uh, in society that we immediately accord a lot of respect to um, uh, and that we value. Uh, and right now, I think the only way we get good people into those jobs is, is if we kind of develop that um, kind of appreciation for it. And part of that is also just kind of, again, uh, uh, paying paying those jobs better, um, providing them with more benefits, and uh, screening them for more uh, expertise. Um, uh, those are two obvious things. And then the third would be to kind of, again, experiment with different forms of um, uh, modulating the virality and distribution of, of different forms of content. Um, there's a lot of uh, ways of uh, there's a lot of middle ground between banning something and allowing it to remain up and just and distributing it, you know, widely to two billion people globally. Globally, um, there's there's a massive middle ground in there, um, and I think you know we've only just begun to see the tech companies begin to figure out. Um, you know, how they can navigate that middle ground um, in a way that provides more of an optimal balance between uh, freedom of expression and, and security. Um, and so uh, if I had a magic wand, those are the, the three things that I would um, uh, encourage and, and nudge the, the tech sector into doing. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us on the Loopcast and giving us your expertise and opinion on this topic and it is a difficult thing to try to solve if it can be even solved. I don't think that's the right word. But as you said, there are many things that can be put in place to help the issue. Mm-hmm. So thank you once again so much for coming on the show, Chris. And to our listeners, please check out his work. Uh, look at his work at the Brookings Institution. And also we will post some of the articles that are relevant to this topic. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chelsea. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Likewise.